Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Gender, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, the host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Rebecca Tossig about her new book, Sitting Pretty, The View from My Ordinary, Resilient, Disabled Body. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. I'm really excited that you're here. I love this book. Um, I wonder if we could start by having you tell us about yourself. Yes. So I'm trying to think of what details would be interesting to another person. Um, I currently, I live with my favorite person in the world, my partner, Micah, and we have this new baby. Um, I don't know how long I can say that he's new. He's five months old now. Um, and he has gone through, it feels like several lifetimes in the time that he's been here with us because he's growing so fast. Um, he's a giant and he's very odd and, um, perplexing and wonderful. Um, so we live in this little house together in Strawberry Hill and have been spending a lot of time together as of late, um, just because we don't go anywhere and, um, in this pandemic world. So, um, we have been in very close quarters and sometimes I feel like I'm losing my mind. Um, and other times I think how lucky that we get to just be, um, together right now and that we're safe. Um, so I don't know, feelings on feelings on feelings every, every moment these days. Um, it's also a weird, it's also a weird time because I, it's the first fall that I haven't been in the classroom in what feels like forever. Like I don't even remember a fall in my lifetime that I didn't start, like I I didn't go to school um, at the the beginning of the end of the summer, beginning of the fall. Um, I stayed in school and went to graduate school like as long as they possibly would let me. Um, And then I started teaching high school right after I finished my, my PhD at KU um, and taught at this independent school in Kansas City for three years. And um, and this is my first year not doing that. Um, and it's very strange. And I really, really miss the classroom. Um, like being a teacher and being a student is like, it's one of my favorite things, but it's also part of my identity. It's like where I feel like my brain fits. And so there's some weird uh, identity shifts happening. And I feel like maybe parts of my brain aren't getting exercised in the way I'm used to them being exercised by a room full of people all sitting together, asking questions together. I don't know. Um, but I think also, you know, I'm leaning more into writing than I ever have before. And I suppose writing is kind of like the introvert version of the classroom where, uh, at least to me, I feel like I go to writing as um, tr- an attempt to understand um, or make sense of things and ask questions. So I, I'm trying to, I don't know, maybe that's a stretch. I need, I need both, I think. But for now, I think writing is um, functioning a little bit like a classroom for me. Um, what else would be relevant? I think I, think I rambled plenty about myself. Uh, I don't know what else I would tell you. Um, I miss the classroom and I'm, I'm at home with my baby and my husband every day. That's the gist of it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I appreciate that you said that your writing um, is like when you're teaching in the classroom because the book itself, I feel like you're speaking directly to us. You break that third wall continually throughout the book and it's just you speaking directly to the reader um, in a really authentic um, and way that really does reach right to us. Um, It's really remarkable um, to be able to do that in a book, Um, which leads me to my next question, which is, will you briefly describe the book for the listeners? Yes. So this is a, uh, what is, we've started calling it a um, memoir and essays um, because it is a very personal book um, and it's divided up kind of thematically. Um, so it's, it's a story about, um, living, living in the world as a disabled woman. And, um, it's kind of born 
from the center of, of that unique perspective. Um, so it, it asks questions about, um, love and romance and work and, um, healthcare and, um, and storytelling and, um, accessible spaces and, um, and really looks at life from, from that vantage point. Um, but ultimately I think it, um, it asks more questions than it tries to answer anything. It's not a book that's like a guide to, um, how to be an ally or, um, a guide to how to talk to disabled people or anything like that. It's, it's a heartfelt curiosity driven, um, look at what it means to live in a body and in particular, a disabled um, female body. And I think in the book, you do a lot of naming the gaps, uh, naming the problems, naming the experiences, um, and inviting us all to sit in that with you rather than present uh, the solutions. Yes, that seems fair. That seems totally fair, Christina. Um, and I think, I think that's because, I mean, I'm not very interested. I, and I, it, it, it makes me wonder how much of going back to that idea of writing being in the classroom to me, because even in the classroom, I'm not nearly as interested in landing on a particular answer. I am much more interested in asking the questions and figuring out what, what new questions that prompts and what stories that prompts and what that makes other people feel and what that makes me feel, you know, like that's the space I think I thrive in. Um, and that's not for everyone. Some people really want like the bottom line and I just can't arrive at the bottom line. I don't think I'm ever, uh, there's like too much digging to do. And I think that comes across in the book where you, you take us to, I think it's a dinner you're having with two of your girlfriends and you're, in kind of a stuck place in your book in that you're very worried about how to grapple with some points about feminism that are coming up for you as you're trying to write the chap the chapter on feminism. And your friend said, well, you're, you're a disabled person. You're not the spokesperson for what disability is for all people. Um, and I think that comes through really clearly in the book as you keep saying, here are the things I'm thinking about. What do they make you think? I'm so glad that that came through for you um, because that is really important to me that 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 no reader get confused at any point and think that that I am speaking across the board because what what an absurd and impossible thing to do or to attempt to do I mean and that's true for any group of human beings um, but disability is such a varied nuanced. Um, constantly in flux experience, um, for a person. And I think I would even go as far as to say that I'm only speaking for myself at that particular point in time. Um, my, I think my thoughts have developed even since I submitted the last round of copy edits for the book, um, that this is like a really fluid conversation, something that I hope and, and expect to continue to chew on. Um, and, and, and knowing immediately, um, you know, I can think of like five disabled friends who would, who would say something different about this topic or that topic. So yes, I'm so glad that translated that, um, really I, I, the most I can offer is a reader is, to bring you very close into my world and my brain and my heart um, and, and look at things carefully and thoughtfully and open-handedly together. Um, but no, yeah, not speaking for anyone else. Um, I really shrink from the thought of that, really. Well, in an opening up the silences, it seems like attempting to do that would just close them back down. Like the one person has spoken. Yeah. So we don't need to allow other people to speak because this one person has spoken. And so we've heard what there is. And we and figured we it have, out. Yes. And we, ha we have figured it out. And now we're all, we're all schooled and we're all ready to go forward. And no. you're, you're presenting it as an ongoing dialogue. And yeah. it seems like part of why you're um, talking about it as an ongoing dialogue is you want to invite us all into the idea that our bodies are having ongoing dialogues with us mm -hmm. and they are not static 
And however we know our bodies right now is not how we're going to know them next mm. month or next year. And so the dialogue has to stay open and ongoing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an invitation, really. I, I hope I see it as an invitation to think about these things together um, so that inevitably when when your body starts to shift in that way, this way or that, or you experience your body in a different way because you're in a new environment, um, or your body encounters another person's body that has needs that you didn't expect, um, that we're prepared to um, have some language to think about that together. Um, and, and, and also, I think, you know, I, I have a cousin um, with a vision impairment, and we grew up together um, you know, seeing each other at like Easter and Thanksgiving, um, every year. And, um, so we were both like these little kids growing up with disabilities and never, ever, ever did we talk about that shared trait with each other. Um, until very recently, um, when my cousin Alex started reading more of my work and, um, and she said something to me recently where she was like, um, I didn't realize we could talk about disability that way. Like, it, I, I didn't know that we could talk about it that way at all. It had, like, it hadn't occurred to her. And I don't think it had occurred to me until much later in my life either that these were conversations we could have together and that they would be meaningful and, um, and that there were words we could use to make sense of things that had been in incredibly important to us our whole lives, but we didn't know how to describe them or we hadn't seen, like that conversation hadn't been started for us. And I really hope that, um, you know, if nothing else, like this book is an invitation for people to do that. And I, I mean, disabled people and non-disabled people for us to start thinking about um, the experiences of our bodies and, and how they're inevitably shifting and what that means to us and what that means um, to our communities and, and how we could respond um, in kind to that. So um, yeah, an invitation um, and an, an offering of language to do that together um, is really what I hope the book, um, what the whole, I, that's what I hope the book is able to do um, for the people that, that read it. And you mentioned this in the book, so I'm, not sure if I have this exactly right, but it sounds like you were lacking a lot of that language as well until you really dove into disability studies and started reading what others had been writing and theories that they had been writing and ways they had been reframing um, the whole subject away from the common dialogue and presenting it in all new ways of seeing it. And that opened up new language and frameworks for you. Yes, yes, that was pivotal for me. Um, and it's and it's so odd to think about because I have been disabled since I was about three years old. So I had been living in this body um, for decades before I found language to describe what that experience had been like. And how amazing is that? Um, you, I mean, you would think you could turn to, you could turn to the 20 year old version of me and that I could speak, um, confidently and thoroughly about what my disability meant to me. But, um, I think that's really the power of language is that some of like so much of my processing of my identity and my memories and my place in the world, um, I was limited in my capacity to do that until I found the language um, in disability studies in graduate school and started reading about more people's experiences um, and seeing myself in other people's stories that I hadn't ever, like stories I'd never encountered before. So um, that, I, I describe it in the book, um, but it's it really felt like, I think the best description of what that felt like. The very first disability study, studies article that I read was by Leonard Davis. Um, it was like 20 years old by the time I read it. Um, and I was sitting in my like tiny apartment on this really gross green velvet chair. And it felt like the physics of the universe were shifting around me. That like things that had been as sturdy as gravity were somehow getting um, flipped. And everything felt different to me. 
um, as I started stepping into that language and those ideas. Um, and it was like strangely familiar, but entirely new. Um, and, and really, I mean, that would, that changed everything for the way that I, um, it was like a key that unlocked so much for me. And what is his central thesis? Well, in the article that I was reading, Leonard Davis um, essentially is um, presents um, what we would call the social model of disability, um, and that is kind of in contrast to the medical model of disability, which most of us are kind of um, immersed in by default. So, the social model of disability shifts the focus from the individual person with the impaired body the woman with a wheelchair or the woman with a vision impairment or um, the man with a cane. Um, and it instead looks to the environment and the, um, the physical and social world around that disabled person um, to, to look at the construction of that experience. Um, so instead of looking at the disabled person, it's looking at disabling experiences. It's looking at stigma and, um, lack of access in physical spaces that create the identity that we have come to understand as the disabled person and all of the baggage and narratives that go along with that person. Um, and Leonard Davis is really interested in, instead of interrogating the disabled person, he is interested in interrogating this notion of the normal body. Um, what is that body? And and how did it become so powerful as this default um, um, kind of the thing we imagine when we build our world. Um, so in, instead of really fixating on the disabled body as a problem to fix, it, it's all this, this um, kind of baggage and ideology that has um, shaped our understanding of disability that needs to be interrogated and, and, and fixed. The, the problem is not, um, and, and that was what became so powerful for me in that moment of reading that for the first time was I had believed for so long, um, whether I had articulated it to myself or not, that I was the problem that needed to be fixed. I was somehow defective. Um, there was this other version of me that was unmarred, but I was the broken version of that girl. Um, and if I could be fixed, then the world would be, you know, that would be the solution. And instead of carrying the shame of being that problem, um, Leonard Davis invited me to look at all of the ways that the world had been shaped to create the experience um, of disability for me. Um, so looking at um, the stigma around disability or looking at the barriers that had um, been created for me as soon as I stepped out of or rolled out of uh, my apartment each day. Um, and looking at those instead of looking at, you know, my paralyzed legs. Um, and it's much more complicated than that, but that's kind of the, the condensed, boiled down, I don't know, Cliff Notes, Spark Notes version um, of, of some of Le Leonard Davis's work. The book takes us forwards and backwards in time. We start with you very young, and we see a lot of your childhood experiences. And then we do see um, your adult life and your independent adult life. And it seems a lot of what you're doing is resorting and reframing all of these memories. Now that you've graduated um, and you've completed your work in disability studies, you have a whole new framework and you're taking out all of these memories and looking at them now from the opposite perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, that's been a bit of the pr my project for the last five plus years um, since it, discovering this language and, and these ideas and disability studies. Um, it's a lot of work uh, to go back and kind of pick through and pull through and, and look and reconsider and rethink um, what happened there, what was happening in that moment, or how did, how did I end up in this position? Um, like one of the, one of the, um, most painful things for me to look at um, that made its way into the book is um, getting married really early. And um, it was 
at the time, um, I, I, I had so little tools for understanding what was happening or why I was making the choices that I did. But the short version is that I, I, um, I got married really young to my high school boyfriend. Um, and there was every possible, Oh, there was a big bang. I don't know what that was. Did you hear that on your end? I did. Are you okay? I'm fine. I wonder if it was a, um, Hmm. I'm fine. I don't see any, anybody. We're all good. Okay. I don't know what that was. Sorry. Um, I, and I was in the middle of talking about my divorce. Oh goodness. Okay. Um, do you know what that was? Sounded like a firework. I don't know what it was, but we're good. Mike is good. Otto's good. Okay. Um, Everybody's accounted for. That's what matters. What's that? I said everybody's accounted for. That's what matters. That's right. And I don't hear anybody making any noises outside. Um, I ended up getting married very young to a person that I really had no business marrying. And there was every sign that we shouldn't get married. And I, I just kind of blew past them. Um, and then much to the shock and, um, distress of pretty much everyone, everyone in my life, um, I divorced that person like, uh, about a year after we got married. And it was like a really confusing thing for, um, for everyone. Um, I don't think anybody expected it. And, there was a lot to process in how that went down and how my body and my expectations for my body and um, the shame that I had in my body fit into that choice um, or both choices, getting married and getting divorced. And so that's an example, I guess, um, of, of some of the painful processing and important work um, that went into reflecting on my experiences in my life and and old memories, but ongoing, ongoing, um, pieces as well. Um, sorry, that boom is like th- threw me off. I'm trying to think what your original question was. Um, oh, rethinking the memories. Um, yeah, I, it's something, um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, I mentioned earlier that like writing is an attempt for me to understand and, um, and ask questions. And, I have been asking these sets of questions of my body for a really long time and rethinking my body um, through this lens for the last several years, which is how the book was born. But I wonder, I wonder, I wonder what that next book will look like or what the next set of questions will be and, and how my body will figure into that. Um, Because the focus of this book is so, um, um, body focused and disability focused in some way, in, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and I wonder, um, I wonder if, you know, now that I have, like, I've been thinking a lot, like now that I have this baby and, and motherhood is this new, strange, confusing, overwhelming thing. Um, will there be like another set of questions where I'll go back and, and, and rethink memories through this lens of motherhood? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about it, but um, so far that has been a pretty defining characteristic of my writing is, is that lens of questioning and rethinking and, and looking at, um, looking at ordinary or old moments through that new lens. The book itself is a series of essays and it also mentions that you wrote these mini essays on your Instagram account. Were each of these outgrowths of the mini essays or how did how did the um, project come together? Oh yes, that is a great question. Um, so I mentioned that I've been kind of doing this work of in, interrogating and rethinking my body for the last five or so years. And part of the reason I have that marker is that's about when I started this Instagram account. Um, I had I was kind of in the middle of graduate work, and I was reading all of this, you know, rather dense academic work, and and but processing it in this really personal, um, personal way. And so I needed some kind of space to think that through and, um, and, and, you know, find my own way of describing it. And so, um, I started writing what, you know, I've come to call these mini memoirs on Instagram that would look at one memory or one experience and, and try to work my way through it and land, you know, um, somewhere new. Um, 
And I was really immediately surprised by that space. Um, I, I, I think I, I invited like my friends on Facebook to follow if they wanted to. I just said like, Hey, I'm going to be doing this thing. Um, but I was immediately shocked when like strangers seemed to show up and care to read what I was writing. And actually that's still kind of shocking to me. I'm still kind of, I mean, when anyone reads my book, I'm like, wow, really? I don't know when that's going to feel normal. Um, because it feels like such personal writing and it's always shocking and amazing to know and hear when people connect to that. Um, and that's what, that's what Instagram became was sort of this validation of, um, of, of, validating the importance and need and hunger that we have um, for making sense of and processing something as fundamental as our human bodies. Um, and, and um, you know, they're with us every day and they impact so much of um, our choices and um, the way that we live. Um, but we don't, I don't know, it seems like there hasn't been a tremendous amount of opportunity for a lot of us to work through that um, and make sense of it. And, and of course there were people that were there to learn more about disability too um, and think uh, and hear about a perspective that maybe they hadn't spent a lot of time around um, or hearing about. Um, So um, yes, I, I've been writing in that space for about, five years and, um, a few, I guess about a couple years into it, I really started to feel the confines of that space, the limitations of it. Cause you know, there's like however many characters you're allowed to write before Instagram cuts you off. And I was constantly getting cut, cut off. And I started writing, um, my posts in like a Google doc and I would try my best to be succinct. And then I would go to copy and paste it into Instagram and it would be like, three times longer than they would allow. And so I'd have to go back and be like, okay, what's really important here? Um, Which became harder and harder and harder, which seemed like a pretty clear sign that that space, um, or I I needed to find a way to expand and stretch and reach beyond the the tiny little corner, um, the the little box that Instagram was giving me um, from day to day. So... um, when I originally um, proposed, put together the book proposal with my agent, um, I did propose it to be pretty similar to the Instagram account. I think originally my plan was um, to have themed chapters with really short essays, like a series of really short essays in them that would be sort of like elaborated. Uh, I would take ideas that I had posted already and elaborate on them and expand and turn them into small essays. Um, and it seemed like uh, uh, I got some feedback that it would make it would maybe make for a um, a better structure to really flesh those small essays out into big, fleshy, meaty um, chapters. And so the so there is a really strong tie between what I started a few years ago on Instagram and what this book became, um, but. I think the the Instagram was maybe like the baby seeds of what really um, grew into a much bigger project that's, that I feel like stands on its own. Um, The the book really, um, I I think I I developed my voice a lot more through the book um, and I'm I'm able to hold on to so much more nuance and complexity than the Instagram space really allows for. so I guess, I don't know, the finished book kind of validates that that was what needed to happen. I needed the, the space to work through some of these ideas and dig deeper than I was really allowed to in Instagram. Um, but, you know, it's not, it's not the end all. I, I'm, I'm ready to keep, you know, it's like we talked about earlier, it's an invitation for more. Um, it's certainly not... Um, comprehensive. It's, it really does feel like a beginning in a lot of ways. Um, but a big first step post or, um, not post, I'm still, I'm still posting on Instagram a lot, but a big step, um, beyond that, that original Instagram space. On Instagram, people can click like, and you can end up with some posts that have far more likes than other likes. 
when you were choosing themes for the book, did you use Instagram uh, as any kind of gauge for what themes people seem to be hungry to know more about? Or did you go with your gut? Oh, that is such a good question. And what an interesting piece of the Instagram experience that is so different with a book Um, because there's that immediate feedback and you know, oh, people are interested in this or you know, oh, people are are pushing back against this. Um, But no, I I really went with um, the themes that were the most compelling and pressing and important to me. I think that Instagram did give me kind of an indication or an idea of what chapters might have the most pushback or might make readers the most uncomfortable. So when I wrote the chapter, The Complications of Kindness, I knew immediately what some of the responses to that chapter would be because, you know, I'd kind of already experienced a smaller version of it on Instagram. Um, I think I also was able to, um, I think one of the gifts of Instagram is that it really has given me concrete um, examples of the ways that my experience doesn't represent everyone's, that people see things and experience things differently than I do. Um, And I continue to, to, to experience that and have my eyes opened wider and my horizons broadened um, more in that space. And so I hope that part of, of um, the experience on Instagram also um, just positioned me to be able to acknowledge that a little bit more and recognize that, for example, the fact that I've been paralyzed since I was three is such an important um, difference from someone who's injured, um, you know, in their mid twenties or, or, or in their sixties. Um, so um, yeah, I, I still went with what was, um, what was in my gut and in my heart and pressing to me personally. But I, I think I went into that with a little bit more, um, knowledge of, of how it might land, um, or might be different from other people's experiences or how people might respond to some of it. Um, but of course the Instagram community is a very specific demographic. And I think that the book is reaching, um, you know, people who would not have found it on it, have, have would not found my work on Instagram. And that, you know, is, is a whole new thing to experience in a way that I, I think is really exciting. Um, but yeah, no, I don't get the immediate likes. I don't, I don't have like the heart count on this book, which is probably for the best. You just referenced chapter seven, the complications of kindness. And if we could circle back and talk about that a bit, um, I think that toxic kindness is an oxymoron that we need to do a bit more talking about in our culture. Mm. Um, And you open that up for people through multiple experiences you've had, but two that were very vivid in the book was, one was you were really just killing it. I mean, you had driven thousands of miles to give a paper. You were completely managing this intense trip all by yourself. Uh, You were stopping somewhere to get yourself a soda and this gentleman comes over and puts money in your lap and is determined to feel sorry for you and frame it as kindness. And we see the struggle that you're going through to hold on to all of the pride and accomplishment of that trip that is being drained away by this man who won't listen to you that you, you don't want, you don't want this encounter that he's creating. And another was when you were just out again, doing your thing. And a woman insists on praying for you. You clearly indicate that this is not anything that you want or that you're inviting. And she's framing it in this insistence of kindness that she must do this thing for you. Um, And you really bring the readers in, in such a way that we are there with you. We are experiencing this. You set up the, the high and the low of it so brilliantly that I'm screaming at the book. No, (laughs) um, can you can you take us to um, chapter seven and 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 about what these complications of kindness are and what what you're what you're wanting people to know about that? Hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a 
I love that you called it toxic kindness. I don't think I use that language in the book and it's such a good term um, because it, I think it, it, it is a, it's a thing, right? Like when you hear that, I think a lot of people who, I mean, the people who've experienced it know immediately what you're talking about. Um, I think ultimately um, this notion of toxic kindness um, for me in my experience, and I think from what I've heard from other disabled people, a lot of it has to do with um, being forced into a narrative that um, you didn't choose, um, you wouldn't choose, that you didn't even actually realize that you were being thrust into. Um, so like the example that you gave of um, of me and um, coming off of that enormous trip in graduate school and presenting at a conference and all of that, and then having that man thrust the money in my lap, it was a jarring moment for me um, because he was pulling me into this narrative um, that I did not want to be in and didn't see myself in. Um, but he was playing he was playing a part in that narrative and he was kind of putting me in, in a part. So he was he was playing the role of the kind, generous um, um, savior. Um, and I was helpless and in need and, um, and pathetic. Um, and I, I think that ultimately what I see in so many examples of kindness, um, cause this takes many, many, many forms, right? It's not just like the moment in the grocery store or the gas station, um, or the coffee shop. It's also, um, in like news stories about, um, you know, the person who, got the food at a fast food restaurant for the disabled person. Or, um, I think the example I give is the woman who, um, helps, a um, deaf and blind man with sign language on a flight and becomes like a viral news story that everybody is applauding for, um, the kindness of humanity without actually looking at the disabled person in that experience hardly at all. Um, to, I think I also talk about in chapter seven about charities and the history of, um, charity. I mean, there's so many different ways that this, this form of kindness shows up. Um, it's, it's a big unwieldy, uh, unwieldy force, but I think ultimately what again and again and again, what I see in all of these examples is, um, a self-celebratory, of self-serving kindness. It's a kindness that really relishes being in that role of the kind person in the room um, who, who probably um, identifies and gets a lot out of identifying as a kind person. Um, and I, and I, it's hard to, it, it's hard to be critical of that in some ways because kindness is a good thing. I mean, I think I, I want to live in a world where we are reaching out to each other and we want to help one another and support one another and find ways to create ease for each other. But I think the problem with this form of kindness is that it's not actually looking at the person um, on the receiving end of kindness. It's hardly making, it's hardly even acknowledging who that person really is. It's hardly considering what their actual experience of that moment is. And it's much more um, in tune to the experience of the of the kind person and um, it's focused on the person extending that quote unquote kindness. So, I mean, like for the woman who a lot of disabled people um, talk about that moment when, when a stranger approaches them and offers to pray for their healing. And there's so many things about that experience that, um, that, that highlight that it's about the person doing the praying and not about the person receiving that kindness in large part because like, why don't you just pray by yourself over there quietly? Like, why do you need to come over to me and approach me and put your hand on me and ask me in this really um, dramatic way? Um, if that's something that feels important to you, I mean, at the very least, you know, don't, you don't need to make a spectacle of it, but, um, and, and there's lots more that's fraught and complicated about those kinds of encounters, but that's a, that's one to me that's like, so this is really, this is really about you. Okay. Um, or, um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of ways that I, I think that I, I think that I started to piece that together because I understand, um, the impulse to want to be on the kind side of things, want to be, um, the helpful person. 
And it's interesting to me. It's interesting to me because uh, a lot of the feedback or conversations that I've had with people after they read this chapter is like, well, I, I open the door for everyone, or I'm always the person who, um, who, who is reaching out to help someone in line at the grocery store. And, and, and again, that's interesting because it's like, oh, it's, so it's, it is about you again. It is, it, you are thinking about who you are and who, who you identify as, as opposed to saying, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that's how it felt. I didn't realize that when I did that, it felt that way to you. Um, so it's, it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting um, habit that I, that we seem to have, that it, it's very difficult. And, 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 and I'm, I'm saying this as someone who I struggle with this on my, in my own um, way as well. And, and, and wanting to um, reach out and be kind and do the right thing. I mean, this has come up for me a lot um, in the last year and just in like conversations about race and wanting to be like, I'm the white person and I want to do something that like puts me on the side of not being the shitty white person, but like the person who's doing good and helping, um, to, to do that anti, anti anti-racist work. But so much of that turns into like, see everyone look at me being the anti-racist and, and, um, and it's about me again. And so I, I guess part of me processing how other people approach disability and kindness is only because I have experienced my own version of a a similar thrust. I think, um, we are, we, we want to do good, um, in large part because we want to be the person doing good. And it's very hard to step out of that and think what is actually going to do good. What is actually going to be kind to someone? What is actually, um, going to make a difference in a positive direction and is not about me in that moment. It's hard to do. Um, that was a lot of talking, Christina. I hope that I, um, it was, I, it made me have a lot of thoughts. Um, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, why did I call it toxic kindness? And as I was listening to you more, I was thinking what to me feels like toxic kindness. And what I would take from what you just said is when the, result of it is that it has actually bolstered inequality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Which goes back to the words that you were using like pride and dignity. It's like, it's taking that away. It's, it's reinforcing. I'm the person in this room, um, that is powerful and you are the person that is weak. And I'm going to reinforce those roles. I think that's right. I think and I think of one sense. of the, the stories in the book that illustrated that for me was when you and your friend went to be camp counselors. Hmm. Um, would you be willing to share some of that story? Yeah. Yeah. Um, who, yeah. That's another example of a memory that I, um, picked up and, and worked through again in retrospect. Um, we, there was this, there is this camp that our church, um, went to all of the time. Um, like every summer there would be weeks that our church would fill the positions at this camp and, um, and it was kind of a special thing. I mean, people would come back from camp and um, tell stories with, you know, like these eyes, like, you know, I've had this amazing experience and um, at camp, you know, camp, there's this special glow about camp. Um, and I really wanted to participate and wanted to be a part of it. And uh, I knew that camp wasn't accessible because, you know, that was just sort of normal. I expected that it wouldn't be accessible. Um but I had kind of worked out a plan to make it work with my best friend. Um, cause we, we did a lot of, we navigated a lot of things. Um, you know, we, we were adaptable together and would find our own weird ways of access. And, um, so we, we proposed to the camp that we go as a unit that, um, that I would be a camp counselor, like a co-camp counselor with my friend um, so that she could kind of help me get around the grassy spots or places where there weren't ramps and there were only stairs. But we would both be doing the work of camp camp counseling, which I think has, to me, has much more to do with like the relationships that you form with the group of kids that you're working with and, um, you know, being present with them um, and creating a space for them to have fun and um, in a safe way. And the camp... Um, denied our, um, proposal, which I'm, I'm sure I'm, you know, like there's gotta be, 
who who knows what went into that decision and what legal things they were thinking of, but it kind of came back as this flat, like, uh, no. And, um, so we, we, I, we proposed again an option of, of not having the role of camp counselor, which was more in the forefront, but, um, maybe we could, I could work in the kitchen. And, um, they agreed that my friend and I could do that together. And so we had been, you know, doing the camp thing, um, for like a, almost a week and, um, having a great time doing it. And, um, my friend you washed a lot of dishes. Yes. Thank you. That was kind of like what we did. Um, we washed a lot of dishes and we tried to find ways to make it fun and silly. And I don't know that we were very efficient, but we, I mean, you know, the kids ate on clean dishes eventually. And, um, thank you for that. Um, wash a lot of dishes. Um, and we would like hang out with the kids, um, in their plate, like free time. Um, so there was like, you know, some relationships that we formed with kids that were meaningful to me. And, um, and then my friend, I'm I'm going into a lot of detail on this, Christina. I hope that's all relevant. What's the short version of the story? Um, my friend, um, ultimately we, we, we saw something we weren't supposed to see, um, and the form showed that, um, next to our names, instead of having like one position filled or two positions filled, um, like everyone else on the roster, it, it said zero. So we were effectively counted as zero, um, for the amount of work that we had put into that experience. Um, and it was devastating to me in a way I had no ability to articulate at the time. Um, it was, and, and, you know, in retrospect, so at the time it was like, wow, I am not only am I, are my contributions literally worthless, but I have now made my friend, um, who could have fulfilled, you know, could have fulfilled a position and gotten a one next to her name, like one position filled. Now she's a zero too. Both of us have been, have been made, um, completely worthless by my presence in this camp. Um, and it was crushing, um, crushing. Um, so in, in, in retrospect, so I'm thinking about that now, like, I don't know what filing system had been created and, and why that was the decision that needed to be on record that there was our names and a zero next to them in terms of positions filled. But, um, but yeah, talk about, uh, concrete reinforcement of, um, of value for, um, for this person who was just showing up to their camp space, you know, in a way that, um, was more difficult because their camp space was inaccessible. So, um, and it, yeah, at reinforcing that inequality for sure. Throughout the book, throughout the essays, there's the grappling with inequality and where is it coming from and who perpetuates it. In the chapter on feminism, chapter six, Feminist Full Party, you're really talking about how feminism didn't create a space for disability. And in a sense, I felt like feminism had let you down the way every advertisement and soap opera and movie and book had in its depiction of what is a woman. Mm. And it's again and again, very white, mm. very in support of ableism, cisgender, heterosexual, um, very specific body type, and a very specific way that it's acknowledged as correct and that always comes from the male gaze, admiring and approving. Mm. And in the chapter on feminism, you're grappling with womanhood, feminism, representation, and finding that even in the feminism space, it's just not there. Can you talk to us about that a bit? Yeah. And you mentioned earlier um, the part of the chapter where I'm, I'm like, grappling with my friends about writing this chapter. It was a very difficult chapter for me to write, Christina. I think I wrestled with that chapter more than any other. Um, and, and I think part of the reason that I grabbed, I, like it was so difficult for me to write was some like really deep seated um, training that I had received that like I don't have, I do not belong in this conversation. And it's interesting to try to, piece out where I learned that and how I learned that. I think it was really stark for me, um, like a really kind of crystallized expression of it um, was at the Women's March that in you know January of 2017. And 
um, women all over the world were um, protesting Donald Trump's inauguration as um, to the role of president. And um, so Micah and I went to the um, Women's March in Kansas City, and I really, really wanted to um, have a sign um, like a, to hold up that, um, that represented what I thought was important in the conversation, which was the intersection between, um, womanhood and disability. And, um, and I, I wrote something, um, disability rights, women's rights, human rights, I think is what I put on the poster. Um, and then once I showed up to that march, which was entirely inaccessible, I mean, the only reason I was able to go was because Micah was there with me, helping me get up and down and through all of the, you know, curbs and grassy hills. And, um, but I was the only disabled person, visibly disabled person that I saw there. Um, and I didn't see a single sign that said anything about, um, about disability at all. And I, um, and my reaction to that in the moment, instead of being like, oh, it's a good thing I'm here because um, this is important and someone should be, you know, calling attention to this. My reaction was like, oh, no, I overstepped. This isn't what this is about. Um, I, I tried to make it something that it wasn't. And, and so I think that that like my reaction in that moment really highlights how I've kind of thought about my own like the tangled fraught. Um, overlap between being a woman and being disabled and um, and where I fit into these like women's issues or things that we would fight for as women. And, um, and then, you know, from there, the chapter I, um, well, not from there, the chapter, that's like in the middle of the chapter, but the chapter kind of really um, tumbles over all of these um, conversations that in my mind, have felt like the the conversations of feminism, and then I kind of piece out how how I don't exactly fit quite right in those conversations. That my experience of those moments are not the same as I've heard them represented time and time again, even even down to the language. And I, I don't hear this quite as much, but there was a time when it was it felt like I was everywhere I turned, I was hearing women um, say phrases like "ask any woman," um, you know, like this is all of us experience this, all of us, um, have felt this and, um, and, and to feed, to hear that and then not experience that or not feel that the same way is disorienting. And, um, and my reaction was, has, was not to say that feminism was missing something. I think my gut reaction was to say, I didn't belong there. Um, and so really the chapter is, is trying to, um, tease that out and think, think about, um, what the, what the relationship between disability and, and feminism and womanhood could be and why it matters, um, at all. And I think my, uh, the, the landing place of that chapter is probably, um, I think I, I am so brief in, in where I land in that chapter. And I think, you know, in the next book or the next essay, I would probably spend a lot more time, um, thinking about, um, the way that at a certain point, um, I think feminism, um, to me has become much less about, um, women and men and much more about power and, um, and suppression of power and inequality and, um, and trying to rally around, um, and, uh, you know, I guess I would say trying to dismantle that, that rigid system and setup that, that has created that gap and vast, vast gap in inequality. Um, so I, I think that I'm talking about this in the same way that I wrote about it, which is very rambly and, um, and entangled and, and fraught, but, um, it, it was a painful chapter to write. And I think I was like learning as I wrote it. Um, and seeing new things as I wrote it in a way that felt really vulnerable to share with any reader because it was like, uh, this is fresh. This is raw. This is in real time. This is what I'm trying to look at. What do you think? Um, so I, I probably a chapter that would, will continue to develop and, and hopefully will spark more things for other people to think about too. As you said, the book is very much a mirror of 
you as a as a teacher, as a professor, as a student, it's really mirroring that classroom method of Socratic thinking. Let's let's sit in the questions yeah. and let's see what they lead us to think about. And that's much more important than asking a question that has one right answer. Mm-hmm. It's not a game of jeopardy. It's a time to really sit in these complicated questions, which if they had easy answers, maybe would be solved by now. Yes. Oh, I love the way that you say that. It is not a game of jeopardy. No. Yes. Um, and that's why we have to ask them. They're hard. What surprised you the most in writing this book? Hmm. Hmm. I like that question. What surprised me? Um, I mean, there's so many different ways to think about answering it. I mean, I obviously um, had never written a book before. So my first go around for the whole process. So in some ways, part of what surprised me was the process of writing it, the experience of like the relationship with an editor. And um, uh, I think it was the first time that I had people like several people reading my work that were as invested in it as me. Um, You know, like as a graduate student, I've been in so many um, writing workshops and you have your work read by people and, and they kindly write like, um, you know, the workshop response, um, of like, you know, maybe make this character more developed, or I don't like the way that this character uses the F word or whatever. Um, and, and my relationships with my editor and, and, um, agent throughout the process, it was incredible to have people looking at that book with me with as much investment in how it was translating to a reader as me. Um, and I loved, I just cherished that so much and it was a wonderful feeling. Um, I think I was also, um, this is going to sound so, so, um, naive and silly, but like truthfully, I, I was really shocked by how hard it was to write a book, which is like, of course it's hard to write a book. Come on, Rebecca. But it was really hard, uh, hard, hard work. I, um, like I mentioned with that, with that chapter, the feminist pool party chapter, like there was deep labor, not just in like the language side of things, but the the reflection and thinking through ideas that was exhausting and and painful sometimes. Um, And that that's in addition to the logistics of like when I was teaching high school, when I wrote this book. So like, when am I actually going to find the minutes to, to put this paragraph together? Um, So like, you know, um, I really squeezed out as much as I could in the, in the tiny corners of my day. Um, but I think ultimately, and, um, maybe the thing that surprised me the most is, um, another thing that maybe I shouldn't have been surprised by, but, um, I had to eventually just let the manuscript go. I, I feel like I could have revised forever and ever and ever. And I think in my mind, I thought that by the time I finally handed that book off and said, like, it's done, that it would feel done and that I, um, I, I would have had, I would have been able to revise it to the most, most polished, refined point and everything would be settled just right. And every, every example and word and question would be exactly as I would have it. And I got to a point where I realized that I... I don't think that I'm capable of writing a book like that or getting to a position, um, that position in writing a book. And I think that that is okay. Um, I think that's kind of what we've been talking about in terms of the book being an invitation, the book being about questions and not answers. Like I think I, maybe what I learned about myself was that, um, you know, I, I'm a heavy reviser, but I'm always going to feel, um, the unfinished parts and the vulnerability um, of that book um, at the end, that it's, it's, it's not going to be done in the way that I imagine a book feels done to someone. Um, It's not, it's not done. And I think that that revelation was like, that's kind of the point. Um, It's a beginning. Um, And I I don't know that I anticipated that turn. Um, yeah, that's probably the biggest surprise. It does feel like a beginning, and I can't wait to see what you write in your next book as you take us further along. 
uh, in your life's journey. Uh, Dr. Rebecca Tausig, thank you so much for being here today and talking with us about your new book, Sitting Pretty. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.